I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, trade guys. guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we're joined by a very special guest, Nancy McLernan. Nancy is the president and CEO of the Organization for International Investment, and she'll break down the importance of foreign direct investment to the American worker and the overall economy. Plus, we'll dig into some recent foreign direct investment trends, including a huge drop-off in investment from China and a global turn towards emerging markets. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, here we go. We have a very special guest today. We have Nancy McLernan here. Nancy, you're going to tell us all about foreign direct investment because that's what you do. Tell us first, just so we get this out of the barn, what exactly is foreign direct investment and what impact does FDI have on the U.S. economy? Thanks so much. And it's really great to be here. Uh, first, uh, just a little bit about our organization. Sure. We are a trade association, uh, like so many folks here in D.C., but we are the only organization that exclusively represents international companies in the United States. So yes, my bread and butter is foreign direct investment. We're now more than 200 companies strong. Our members are all significant investors and employers here in the United States in all different sorts of industries from companies that are headquartered all over the world. What is foreign direct investment? So it's a wonky term. Right, that that really describes uh, simple a- action. Right, it's when a company that is globally headquartered in another country makes a deliberate decision to invest in the United States and employ people here, and they do it for a variety of reasons, and one of which is to serve the U.S. marketplace. That clearly is an important factor. But there are other things that drive foreign direct investment here um, that has to do with the quality of our workforce, um, the rule of law. Um, because these firms not only manufacture here for our uh, market, but they also are a strong exporter from the United States, exporting about a quarter of all U.S. exports. So there are a variety of reasons these companies do it. Companies like Nestle, that is globally headquartered in Switzerland. Um, Samsung, globally headquartered in Korea. I have a Samsung TV. They're awesome. Excellent. They're awesome. Electrolux, Sweden-based Electrolux that makes their appliances um, down in North Carolina. I would guess that a lot of people don't know many of the brands that they uh, purchase and love are made in the United States by, quote unquote, foreign companies. But when you unpack what these companies do here in the United States, there's not that much foreign about them. So, Trey, guys, jump in here. Scott, I know that you have a lot to say about this. Well, look, globally engaged companies serve consumers in lots of different ways, and they're looking for the best way to address a consumer market or or the, their customer market. And we talk a lot about trade on the show. We talk a lot about physical importation of goods and exports of goods. But this is another way, and, and in some ways a, a very powerful way, of serving the local consumers in, in the United States. So, 
companies that directly invest in the United States, regardless of their headquarters, are creating jobs, they're creating employment here, and they're, they're usually making products that are be best tailored to the U.S. market. So this is a very valuable part of our economy. Likewise, American headquarter companies who engage with the world invest abroad. So this is, this is something that, that really is a hallmark of companies, and it, it varies by business model. Uh, if, if you're Boeing, you, you can build the jet in the United States and fly it to its destination. Uh, but if you're Nestle, uh, you want to be close to the consumer because of, of freshness. Uh, lots of other product, you know, food products are like that. The, the, just the way uh, the way you reach consumers, the way you go to market. So, and isn't foreign direct investment? Isn't a lot of it a good sign for any healthy economy? Yeah, I mean, some may call it a bellwether about how globally competitive we are, right? And and the U.S. has uh, been the number one location for foreign direct investment for some time. However, we've seen our share of foreign direct investment uh, fall, rise, and fall again. So in 2000, the U.S. attracted about 35% of the world's cross-border investment. And then by 2008, it had fallen to about 15%. Why was that? Well, I think that uh, the main reason was that other countries got more competitive. They really ramped up their uh, attractiveness uh, for bringing in foreign direct investment. And, and that was at a time that the Obama administration uh, created Select USA, which is the federal government's first investment promotion agency. Prior to that, all of our recruitment of foreign direct investment came from governors. And it just became harder and harder for Ohio uh, to compete against Germany, right? Because most other developed countries had a federal level investment promotion arm. Since 2008, we went back up to about attracting 25% of the world's economy, cross-border investment. And then from 2017 to 2018, we dropped again for the first time in eight years, dropping down to about 23%. Um, but it is a really, um, I think, uh, very clear sign uh, yardstick, if you will, of how competitive we are as a nation when we attract companies that are not homegrown. Yeah, I saw you had two really strong years in what, 15 and 16 or 16 and 17? Right. And now you've had uh, decline and this year looks to be on track also. So what is this have anything to do with the current administration or is this larger macroeconomic issues? Yeah. So I think that they're just like anything else. There's a lot of different factors at play. Number one is worldwide foreign direct investment is contracting. So from 2017 to 2018, uh, it contracted about 14%. And the U.S. drop was about 8%. So we dropped less than the, than the sort of global contraction of FDI. But I think that the rise not only in the United States but around the world in sort of nationalism, um, multi-localization, uh, you know, sort of this forced uh, domestic production – I think is having an impact on all of that. Sure, a piece of it is aggregate demand, right? To, sure. It, it declines in two thousand eight were clearly because our economy was in recession. Yeah. Okay, and uh, and yeah, other that explain other the last two growing years. faster. The last two years, the United States has actually been growing faster than uh, Europe in particular, but uh, also Asia has slowed down some versus say 10, 15 years ago. So while aggregate demand is part of the story, it's only a part, and policy is a, is a is yeah. a is a so different. So twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen were extremely extraordinary years. Um, 2017 and 2018 went back to normal levels. And again, we're still the largest 
you know, the the most um, popular location for FDI, I think it's important to look at that global share because that, again, tells us how competitive we are with other countries. We don't want to leave any jobs on the global sure. table, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and being attractive for FDI, part of that story is kind of, Bill, what you were mentioning, the, the current policies of um, uh, sort of uh, promoting an America first environment provide some uncertainty. Um, some of our strained relationship with our most uh, longstanding trading partners also has caused increased um, uncertainty. And that decreases foreign investment or no? Yeah, no, it definitely can At have the margin, uh, sure. yeah, and tariffs and other things. Um, that make it more costly to be a company that operates in multiple jurisdictions definitely has uh, an impact as well. So, so how can we say that we're open for business, yet at the same time, we're saying America first? It's, we're sending mixed messages is what I, I'm hearing from you. Well, I think that's probably true with most administrations, um, unfortunately, right? There is this, we're open for business, we want to do the next ribbon cutting um, at the next facility, but then is there? there's a disconnect between that and policies that provide the same opportunities for all companies to succeed in the U.S. market. You know, there was a time that we always, you know, we put a flag on a company, mm-hmm. right? And it's becoming, because of how companies have operated, for the last 30, 50 years, it's becoming m- more and more difficult to do that, but more irrelevant to do so. And I think that we see our political leaders still kind of wanting to do that. Well, but here's, it's here's a way to think about it, Andrew, is, is if you imagine, you know, we have an open investment policy. Yeah, anyone can invest in America. We're delighted to welcome foreign investment into the economy. Foreign investors are treated equally uh, before the law. They have all the rights and privileges that that any that an American person or American company would. Well, that's the hope. That's We've the, had some challenges that, to that. But. That's the positive side. Yeah. The negative side, if you look, look at our imports, half of our imports are intermediate goods. They're things we use to make other things. The tariffs on intermediate goods have made it less attractive to produce finished goods here, including the the foreign invested companies who are trying to produce finished goods, whatever they might be, in the U.S. So we're we're we're, we're welcoming with one hand, and then we're making we're raising the cost of doing business with the other. And that's well, we're doing something else too. And I wanted to ask you about this. We welcome inbound investment. This administration seems to be actively discouraging outbound investment. The president's clear he wants he wants Americans to stay here and he wants them to produce more here, and they're under some pressure to do that. Do you find that being reciprocated? Are your members having pressure from their home governments to do the same thing, to stay in the UK, in Japan or Korea, in Norway or wherever it is? Well, as I said, you know what's happening in this country is uh, similar to what's happening in other developed countries. I think that we have this nationalism rising. Um, in a variety of places all over the world, and that is what is mm-hmm. is factoring into that contraction of FDI. Um, and while, again, while we say we're we're open for business, there is a disconnect between open for business and policies that would negatively or disproportionately impact them. So, my industry sector, if you will, mm-hmm. so international companies in. Uh, the insurance space, mm-hmm. in the car space, in the um, food space, are operating from the the you know the specifics of their industry. Sure. However, as an industry of international companies in and of itself, a lot of policymakers don't know that some of my companies are quote unquote foreign, 
right? So when they introduce legislation, and this is true out of the administration as well in the regulatory space, trying to go after foreign companies, they don't realize that's their favorite washing machine manufacturer um, in the yeah. United States. That's their their favorite you know local producer that's really globally owned. Sure. And so one of the main missions of our organization and what we try to arm our companies with is how to talk about their global heritage, mm-hmm. right? In a way that that people understand, okay, I'm a, a company that started off in the UK, but we've been in the United States more than a hundred years. And we have imported policies, corporate culture, that actually specifically benefit the United States. So when I think about what does foreign investment mean to the U.S., U.S. economy, it it first and foremost means paychecks. So 7 million Americans get a paycheck from an international company. And here is just a, I think, somewhat of a shocking stat. Foreign companies are actually driving made in America. 62% of all of the uh, manufacturing jobs created over the last five years have been at international companies. Foreign companies are driving made in America. I believe believe that's what the stats bear out. When you say we should be clear about definitions, when you say international companies, you're referring to foreign headquartered companies operating in the United States. Because we have international companies too. GE is an international company. Right. But you're not talking about them. No. And GE probably doesn't refer to themselves as an international company. No, you're you're talking about Japanese. You're talking about Japanese. GE Appliances is now now owned by a foreign company. But you're you're talking about Japanese companies, German companies. Headquartered companies. Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. Operating in the United States. Globally headquartered outside the United States with operations here. Let me ask a question about that has frustrated me for years. I used to have battles with my friends in organized labor about this, and I think this is a, a problem that this administration. Shocking that Bill had battles with his friends. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Shocking. Um, this is also, I think, true of this administration. That fundamentally, they look at investment location as sort of a zero sum thing. You know, a dollar for for an American company, a dollar invested in Mexico for the for organized labor is a dollar not invested in the United States. Right. It's either here or there. And I've always thought that these things are win-win, that uh, a foreign investment inbound produces uh, gains on both sides. Yep. So you're, That's what the statistics show. Absolutely. Uh, have you got data on that? Maybe not now, but can you share it with us? Because yeah, I, no, absolutely. I look for that. Um, yeah, that, that definitely shows. I mean, there have been um, studies, and again, I don't have it here with me, U.S. investment ab- abroad you know, re- redounds to the benefit of Americans, right? But it's a harder, it's a hard economic equation sometimes when you're in the country receiving the investment. So the U.S. receiving foreign direct investment, there's bricks and mortar. There is a, a more simple economic sure. um, sort of math equation um, to take a look at it. But I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Well, if you share the data with us, we will put it in the trade guys' notes. Yeah, for the sure. number, I, the number that I used years ago was that for every U.S. dollar invested. Outside the country, uh, something like a dollar thirty-two came back. Well, I, Fifteen uh, or twenty cents. I used to work for taxes. a company that had almost no exports, exports only to Canada and Mexico from its U.S. operations, mm-hmm. and yet one in five U.S. jobs were attributed to the international business, and they were they were good jobs in logistics, R and D, uh, all the all the headquarters functions of a global company that basically benefited from the fact that you had. Uh, assets abroad, and you had you had you had you had production abroad. So there there is it's definitely a, a, a 
positive sum game. And the same goes for, for foreign companies who invest in the United States. It benefits the United States. It benefits the operations of the company. It makes them better companies overall, better able to serve consumers. I'll give you an interesting example. So many years ago, and I, I don't think this will shock you guys, but maybe it will. Um, Unilever, one of our members, acquired Ben & Jerry's. And Ben & Jerry's made sure that their corporate culture was intact because that was a, a big selling point of the company. But that acquisition has enabled Ben & Jerry's to compete in Europe against Haagen-Dazs. Right. So before it was just a U.S. company and, and didn't have that global reach. The, the same thing is happening when U.S. companies um, invest abroad as well, bringing lots of different things to the U.S. market in a way that benefits U.S. consumers. Yeah, you want to hear a great story about Ben and Jerry's? You know, everybody pitches Ben and Jerry their favorite flavor, right? right? So I met Ben Cohen and I said, look, I've got the flavor of all flavors for you. Right. Okay. And I said, Ben, I know you're a music fan, you know, Cherry Garcia and everything. So I said, look, you've got to come up with a flavor called Neville Nation for the Neville brothers, right? Neville Nation. <laughs> and I gave him like the whole recipe and everything. Shocking and I, that we haven't seen that yet. No. And I'm thinking like, this is a winner. Like who doesn't want to <laughs> eat Neville Nation from New Orleans? It's like, you know, fudge brownie. It's got like praline in it, everything. And, and he just looks at me and he goes, you know, I've got something with Dr. John in the works. And, you know, to talk about crushing a guy, okay? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's my story. I think the Neville brothers will forgive you for this. I, the I Neville brothers know this story. They were my neighbors in New Orleans and when I was at Tulane, and they know all about it. And Dr. John also knows about it because he was a friend. <laughs> God rest his soul. Well, there's some new laws about governing foreign investment. The this Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States has existed for some time now. Right. But there's new, new legislation was passed a year or two ago. How is that affecting your members? What's What are the changes? What are you noticing yeah. in terms of U.S. Uh, oversight and regulation of foreign investment. Yeah. So our organization supported that law, um, sort of the modernization of CFIUS when it passed. CFIUS, the, the Committee on, committee foreign, on foreign Investment. Committee on Foreign Investment in the U United States. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there were some elements to that uh, bill that really just codified what was already happening in current law. Um, I think it's really important for Congress to feel very confident in that review process because if they don't, um, deals become politicized uh, very, very easily. Um, we have found that over the years, competitors try to use that government review process to achieve something that they couldn't in the marketplace. So we were pleased to see Congress modernize um, uh, CFIUS so that they would have confidence in the process. We're involved uh, right now in the regulatory stage, um, wanting to ensure that CFIUS reviews stay focused on sort of defense-related national security, if you will, doesn't drip into protectionism. And so right now, I think there'll be more deals filed, um, but it's not our expectation that it would discourage uh, the kind of foreign direct investment we've been talking about here today. It's really about China. I mean, it's neutrally phrased. It's always neutrally phrased. So the theoretically, you know, anything your members are going to acquire is going to end up being going through some sort of, some level of review process. I think the expectation is that if you're going to see anything different, 
Uh, it'll be mostly have have to do with China. I mean, the, the main thing to me that the, the law does is it expands the universe of stuff that they're going to look at. Mm-hmm. Because in the past, it was just it was outright Personal acquisitions. Personal data is is factoring, you know, very, yes. obviously very well, it's, important. Well, it's, it's they're going to look at uh, non-passive, non-acquisitions. Mm-hmm. So, but even though, Bill, ventures. even though it's sort of aimed at China, some of my members, and I have some Chinese companies, but some of my non-Chinese uh, member companies mm-hmm. um, that have exposure in China – are being impacted even though that they're not really? a Chinese-owned company. Yes. How so? I mean, on well, the assumption the concern that- about supply chains and so forth. Um, that even okay. though that the company is uh, headquartered in Germany, if they have significant exposure in China okay. and sort of how they're. So um, the, the complexities of the real world are, are that's right. showing up that's in, right. the, in the administration well, of the law. I think what we this has been a common theme on this podcast in the past that supply chains make everything more complicated. And this is a uh, this is a good example of that. There are all kinds of connections. I mean, the other thing that's happened, thanks also to supply chains, is all these things are multiple uh, uh, in multiple jurisdictions. If your company in Germany is going to buy somebody, they're going to need they don't may not need just U.S. approval. They may may need Chinese approval. They may need EU approval. Uh, they may need, you know, uh, Canadian approval for that matter, because they have facilities in all places, and all places are impacted. It, uh, does that make the process of making foreign investments a lot more complicated than it used to be? I don't think so. People know how to navigate. Yeah, I think people know how to navigate it. I don't think so. And kind of the same things that they have to go through with antitrust rules, and so I think it's sort of baked in. You know, a big question mark out there is how. Will the growing um, nationalistic sentiment affect right. um, affect all of this? The majority of foreign direct investment in any developed country is through M and A, like eighty mm-hmm. some percent. And um, you know, so I just gave the the Unilever example, right? M and A, cross border M and A, enormously benefits mergers the company. and acquisitions. Mergers right? and acquisitions uh, enormously benefits the company being acquired because you've got cash flooded in, right? A, a foreign company that buys an entity is doing so because they believe in that company. It's a foothold into the market. Um, and so all these other economic factors um, so the, show significance. The, the, home, the home operation is recapitalized, but you have opportunities worldwide now. I love the idea of Ben & Jerry's ice cream got into Europe because Unilever purchased them. Right. Uh, otherwise, it would have not been. A, had, it's so much better than Haagen-Dazs. Well, I think so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah. You know, well, Nancy, let me ask you this. <laughs> so, which, which, what's your favorite flavor? Well, would Cherry Garcia? It, it, it would, would have been Neville Nation. It would have been Neville Nation, but of course it is Cherry Garcia. Um, Nancy, let me ask you this. So we talked about some of the countries that are the top investors in the U.S., U.K., Japan, Germany, Ireland, France. China, though, let's talk about China. China recently, I guess, has cracked the top 10. Right, so it's now accounting for about 1.4 percent. Is that right of FDI in the U.S.? It's way down. Yeah, and in yeah, terms of the flow dollars. The, uh, so, but but their stock, China's stock in the U.S. grew the fastest out of the top 20 cumulative um, countries, and it rose uh, more than fourfold uh, from uh, from 2013 to 2018. Okay, so, so, but, so so let's talk about China going forward, though. What should we expect, given the relationship with the United States and China right now? What should we expect China's share? Should it grow or shrink in years to come? What do yeah. you think? I think Chinese outbound investment, not just in the United States, but in other countries, is under some heavy scrutiny. I think there's been some directives in China to take care of that. So it's not just the U.S. or other countries sort of putting up barriers. I think that 
um, uh, Chinese companies are also realizing they're making the environment tough for them. And I, I expect to kind of see them pulling back um, even further for the environment to, to get a little softer well, for them. Well, the Chinese, I think, are restricting uh, are restricting outbound investment for their own yeah. domestic policy purposes. We were all also struck, and we, we've commented on this before by the McKinsey Global Institute study from last February or March, that, among other things, talked about uh, uh, in China and India uh, that they are beginning now to do what economists have been telling them to do for years, which is to uh, move away from the export-led growth model to a domestic consumption-led growth model, but that they're doing it with uh, indigenous supply chains. So that what you've got are people build Chinese companies building Chinese supply chains. I think not necessarily because they have to, uh, or because we're precluding that, or the Chinese government is precluding it, uh, but for a variety of economic reasons, they're they're just trying to they're trying to shorten the supply chain. And it may be that they're trying to um, insulate themselves from some of the vulnerabilities or some of the, the vagaries of other countries' policies and or tariffs. Uh, that are going on. Yeah. But, you know, Andrew, your mention of China, right? Chinese investment in the United States, Chinese companies right now is sort of the tip of the sword on policy affecting all of my companies. So uh, initiatives that are introduced um, in Congress, uh, regulation that is that are trying to go after Chinese companies would actually affect all of my member companies, because it's very hard to sort of isolate out, um, kind of going after companies from a certain country, right. which is why it is so important for our member companies, uh, our organization to unpack the full story of foreign investment, because still Chinese investment is still relatively small in the United States compared to companies and from countries that have been investing in the United States for decades and, and uh, more than a century. And we've seen that happen since uh, over the last 30 years. So uh, before this podcast, we were talking about when the U.S. began its efforts in Iraq and France decided not to to join us in that effort. And there was a, a whole uh, outrage uh, in Congress kind of going Freedom after fries. French companies. Yes. But initiatives were introduced that were going to affect all of my members. I think there is this sort of misconception that there's a monolithic foreign company when it's obviously enormously uh, diversified. Right. So you and your organization have a lot of messaging to do, it seems. When we started in 1990, and at that time, it was the concern about Japanese investment in the United Mm -hmm. States, there was a big headwind against us, right? And I've seen over over the last 30 years, this sort of up and down, um, but mostly upward trajectory of support for global connections. And I think that starting in 2016, again, not just in the United States and not just with President Trump on both sides of the aisle, there is a lot of skepticism about our global connections. And, you know, I don't know, maybe five years ago, I was saying, you know what? I think we're good. Maybe we we don't need to, you know, people are understanding sure. and uh, supporting foreign direct investment. Um, and now we're in really turbulent times. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's not just in the United States, U.S. companies in Europe and in the U.K. Like all of global businesses have a challenge now because our political leaders, um, for the most part, are – are pushing this nationalistic um, <laughs> sentiment. It's up to us to to try to turn that around. When I was a lobbyist and and doing running a different association, when we talked, we talked a lot about tax, 
yeah. and tax policy, which is a big deal for you guys. I assume, is it still a big deal? And how has the tax bill from last year affected your, your, yes. your guys? So it, it's, I think, tax and trade are always big deals for um, for large corporations or, or other, you know, for yeah, most sure. corporations, right? And so in the 52-day sprint that Congress considered the tax reform, you know, we felt that they, that our companies were being heard. And there were policies that were initially part of it that would have been discriminatory against our companies. Um, At the end of the day, our organization supported it. Um, Again, most of our companies are concentrated in the manufacturing sector. And I think manufacturing companies in general um, did well um, in the tax reform. Has that that been your experience after, after the fact? Has it turned out the way you thought it was going to turn out? So there's still some things up in the air. So regulations have not been finalized. Um, but I would say overall, tax reform made the U.S. more competitive uh, for foreign direct. Well, that's the that's a story that never got out on the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, because everybody, everybody focused on the the, the uh, individual side. But the the real changes, the substantive changes, were largely on the corporate side, and, and they the were quite quite positive yeah. with the with territorial taxation and a much lower headline rate. Yeah. Uh, all that made made the United States a better place to locate production, whether from a foreign headquarters or domestically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a fascinating discussion. And it brings me to, you know, one final thing I wanted to bring up. But as we go forward with these issues, you know, it seems to me there's going to be an increasing overlap between national and economic security issues. How does that play out in your world? Protecting national security is obviously the most important thing. What we need to make sure is that economic security is not subsumed into national security in a way that erects barriers, because we know that that actually will threaten national security, right? You know, foreign direct investment in the United States actually strengthens our national security. It it diversifies our economy, and it gets other countries on the same side of the economic ledger as the United States. And many of our companies have very strong veterans programs. DSM, which is a Dutch company uh, manufacturing down in North Carolina, the material for our military's flak jackets in North Carolina. And so it's interesting that national security would in any way feel threatened by foreign direct investment. But how any administration defines national security will absolutely impact whether you know we are open for business. These are partners in both national security production, whether it's uh, weapon systems or, or whatever the components might be, but they also enhance our economy. They lead to faster growth. They lead to more jobs and right. better jobs. So, which is increasingly a, a huge positive. part of our national security. Right. Absolutely. Well, there, there's a saying that you know, when when goods uh, cross borders, armies don't. Right. So, strengthening our economic relationships with other countries, whether it's through trade or cross border investment, strengthens our national security. It doesn't weaken it. Yeah. You know, I want to get a painting of Bill in a Napoleon outfit with that slogan and put it up in my office. That's my next big acquisition. <laughs> All right. Will you be put, be uh... and, and he, he will have posing the, for that Bill? Little, the Neville what? Brothers ice cream yeah, brand that didn't happen. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Reminding me of my ultimate failure. Yes, there you go. Or a potential new business opportunity. <laughs> you never know. Nancy, Thank you so much for being here today with the Trade Guys. This was really enlightening for me, interesting, and you know we hope to have you back sometime soon. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
to our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.